1: You know, we humans are smart as individuals, but we're actually not good at figuring out complicated things. We have confirmation bias. We search for evidence we're right. We have these incredible epistemic institutions that channel difference or diversity or argument and turn them into greater insight. But you have to have the viewpoint diversity. You have to have people pushing against each other. And by design, we always used to have that universities, journalism, the adversarial legal system is set up that way. And when that fails, When you systematically intimidate dissenters, the institution gets structurally stupid. And now, The Good Fight with Yasha Monk.
2: I'm really excited about talking you through some of the main themes of my new book, of The Great Experiment, Why Diverse Democracies Fall Apart and How They Can Endure. Now, on the podcast last week, when I was interviewed by Ravi Gupta, I introduced you to some of the main themes of the book. I introduced you to why I think that what we're doing at the moment is a historically new departure, trying to build deeply diverse democracies that actually treat all of their members as equals. And I also started to talk a little bit about the themes of chapter one, which I am summarizing for you today. On the podcast last week, I told the story of Henry Teufel and the way in which he proved the minimal group paradigm, the way in which he showed that the instinct to form groups and go on to discriminate against those who don't belong to it goes really, really deep. I have a really diverse set of students at Johns Hopkins, really smart students who think of themselves as the most tolerant people in the way, and in some ways, perhaps they are. But when I ask them to debate about whether or not a hot dog is a sandwich, those who think that it is start to discriminate against those who think that it's not, and vice versa. This is one of the reasons why it's so hard to build diverse democracies. We will always have groups, We will always have group rivalries. We will always be tempted to discriminate against outsiders, even if we define ourselves by our tolerance. As the wonderful American comedian Tom Lehrer once said, it is very important that you love your fellow human beings. And there are some people in the world who do not love their fellow human beings. And I hate people like that. So far the bad news. But there's also some good news, because while ethnicity and religion, nationality, race, have particular power in the human imagination, while they were often used to draw those crucial boundaries between different groups, the precise way in which we determine who is in and who is out depends on the political context. In some contexts, Catholics and Protestants might think of each other as mortal enemies. In others, they are going to collaborate as Christians against Muslims or Jews. In some contexts, as I tell in a story in chapter one, Chawas and Timbukas think of each other as deep enemies because they're competing for power. In other contexts, those two tribes cooperate because political institutions are set up in a different way. And so this, to me, is the lesson from chapter one of the book. It's the starting point for the reflection on how to make diverse democracies work, in which I'm going to engage for the next nine weeks, covering the next nine chapters of a the book. There was something noble to the aspiration I had to overcome groups, to care about everybody equally, because every human being does matter, including those that live very far away from us. But we will always have groups. We will never at mass, at scale, be able to resist the human instinct to form groups, to identify particularly with people who have some commonalities with us. What is subject to our agency, however, is where we draw the boundaries between those groups. Whether our political institutions, whether our culture encourages us to discriminate in terrible ways against outsiders, or whether it can sustain real forms of cooperation. There are no primordial hatreds which are destined to define our lives forever. The big question, which I will hope to answer in the remainder of these little monologues, which I hope to have answered in the remainder of the book, is what kind of political and social institutions can help us to make those seemingly primordial hatreds less salient? less important, less destructive. What set of norms and institutions can encourage the better angels of our nature, can encourage tolerance, can encourage toleration, can encourage cooperation between these different kinds of groups. I look forward to sharing more parts of a book with you next week. But if I can ask you a favor, please order the book. Please read it. Please read along with this conversation so that we're thinking through these issues together. My guest today needs little introduction. It is Jonathan Haidt. John is the Professor of Ethical Leadership at the NYU Stern School of Business. He's the author of a number of important books that have really influenced me, including The Righteous Mind, as well as The Coddling of the American Mind. And we talked today because he has published a really interesting and super viral article in The Atlantic called after Babel in the print edition or why the past 10 years of American life have been uniquely stupid in the online edition. It is a serious attempt to explain why the centripetal forces seem to have won out in the last months and years. Why it is that it has become so hard for the core institutions of the liberal society for freedom of speech, for academic freedom, for the constitution of knowledge to defend itself against the voices on the extremes. This conversation really helped orient me in the strange political moment or rather epoch we're in. And it also made me a little bit more optimistic about what kind of individual changes and what kind of institutional changes we might be able to embrace to ensure that American life is going to be just a little less stupid over the course of the next 10 or 20 years. Jonathan Haidt, welcome back to the podcast. Thank you, Yasha.
1: Pleasure to come on.
2: Well, you know, it feels like you have a right strategy for writing, which is that you write, you know, two or three pieces a year, and each of them just makes an enormous contribution and an enormous splash. And you've just written an especially interesting and ironically viral piece about the way in which our digital institutions have made everything in American life uniquely stupid over the last 10 years, and why you're not very optimistic about the changing. So tell us the basic promise of the piece. Why is everything uniquely stupid?
1: Yeah. So the piece is the culmination of my eight-year struggle to understand what the hell happened. I've been a professor since 1995, I love being a professor. I love universities. I loved it when I was an undergrad in 1981. And I just felt like this is the greatest job on earth to be paid to basically, you know, live this life. I got a glimpse of it as a philosophy major of, you know, Plato's Academy, sitting around under the olive groves talking about ideas. And then all of a sudden, from out of nowhere in 2014, things got weird and they got aggressive and they got frightening. And this lovely game, this game that's been going on for thousands of years in which one person serves something and the other person hits it back and dialogue, persuasion. I mean, I think what you were reacting to was that we have this long tradition of persuasion. And suddenly, suddenly in 2014, around there, intimidation came in. There was a new element, which was, if you say something, people won't argue why you're wrong. They'll slam you as a bad person. And on the left, they'll usually call you a racist. On the right, they'll call you a traitor. But something changed on campus. And Greg Lukianoff was the first to really diagnose it. My friend, Greg, who is the president of the Foundation for Individual Rights in Education. So he came to talk to me in 2014, and that became the Coddling the American Mind. That was my first attempt to figure out, like, what changed? Why are universities getting so weird and more intimidation now? And we thought maybe it was just on campus. That was original thesis that colleges were somehow teaching these ways of thinking. But then by 2017, it was clear, nope, uh, this is spreading more widely as Gen Z began to graduate in 2018 and take jobs in journalism and go to law school and medical school. But it wasn't just that Gen Z was carrying these bad ideas out of college. It's that they were spontaneously germinating all over the place by 2018 and in Europe and Canada and Britain. So I wrote another essay in the Atlantic, called The Dark Psychology of Social Networks, really trying to hone in on what's going on with social media. But even that wasn't enough. So I'm supposed to be writing a book on capitalism and morality called Three Stories About Capitalism and the Moral Psychology of Economic Life. And the book was due in 2017, and I keep putting it off to write other things. And I had a sabbatical last year, and I was going to finally write the book. But I kept being obsessed with this question, like, no, no, something is deeply wrong with the social universe. And I, I, I had little glimpses of what it was. And after talking with Don Peck, my editor at The Atlantic, and Jeff Goldberg, they both encouraged me, no, just don't write a bunch of little articles on this. Like, try to just write one big one. Okay, so that's the long windup. The core idea of the piece.
2: We're now really very
1: impatient to hear
2: what we answered.
1: (laughs) That's part of my strategy. Leave them wanting more. Goodbye. So the core idea of the piece, the thing that really got me excited, you know, of the 10,000 things written on social media, this one might be new, is the central idea is structural stupidity. And what that means is that to be smart, you know, we humans are smart as individuals, but we're actually not good at figuring out complicated things. We have confirmation bias. We search for evidence we're right. But we have these amazing institutions. And this is Jonathan Rauch's whole argument in the Constitution of Knowledge. We have these incredible epistemic institutions that channel difference or diversity or argument and turn them into greater insight. But you have to have the viewpoint diversity. You have to have people pushing against each other. And by design, we always used to have that in universities, journalism, the adversarial legal system is set up that way. And when that fails, when you systematically intimidate dissenters, the institution gets structurally stupid. It cannot be smart. It cannot do smart things. And that's what happened beginning in 2014. And it spread into journalism, I'd say, maybe more in 2018, 2019. And after George Floyd, the intensity on the left of shooting dissenters was really intense. Of course, when Trump came in in 2016, the Republican Party got much stupider in its own ways. So that's really the heart of it.
0: This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it a real POS? You need Shopify for retail, from accepting payments to managing inventory Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. So
2: I get that there is the constitution of knowledge as Jonathan Rauch describes it. All of these institutions, which are meant to facilitate this, to make sure that you can criticize the government without going to jail, to make sure that you can publish an unpopular academic article without losing your job, to make sure that when you're writing a newspaper article for a quality paper, you're supposed to get a comment from both sides and you're supposed to have various processes to check your biases. Why does that go out of a window? Because a lot of those institutions, at least formally, are still in place. We still have the First Amendment. We still have academic freedom. Uh, You know, there are still some journalistic standards at the New York Times, which are supposed to encourage that kind of objectivity, and yet those things don't seem to work as they used to. So what's the difference?
1: So I'd say Twitter is the difference, or Twitter generalized to the hyper-viralized social media environment. So a key part of the story here is that social media changed in very important ways in 2009 that made it much more viralized and much more effective at intimidation. So in its original incarnation, social media is not harmful. You know, in general, connecting people is good. When everybody can email everybody, everybody can call people on the phone, you can send a letter. I mean, the long history of human development is making it easier for people to talk and ideas spread, and that's good. But when social media platforms came out in 2003, 2004, you get MySpace and Friendster and Facebook. At first, it's just about performance, like, hey, look at me, look at my page. But then you get the news feeds. And the key thing is in 2009, Facebook adds the like button and Twitter copies it. Twitter adds the retweet button and Facebook copies it. And so just with those two innovations in 2009, suddenly it's not just, hey, come to my page and look at what I posted. It's constant stuff coming in, which I can retweet to everybody or I can comment on or I can quote tweet and slam and talk about how terrible this person is. And so it's as though the fabric of social media changed in that year. Now, the norms don't change right away. When Twitter first came out, it was generally a nice place, a lot of talk about trivial stuff, but it wasn't nasty. It's only as these new norms filter in, as people learn how to manipulate these platforms, as the news media kind of incorporates itself in With Twitter, so much of what's on Fox News is about something that happened on Twitter. Those changes take a few years. And so it's only around 2012, 2013 that it begins to get nasty. And in 2014 is when I think we have the phase change. That's when a lot of stuff gets nastier. It's also when the Russians really activate their network. Of course, the Russians have been trying to mess with our democracy for a long, long time. And they really activate their troll networks in 2014, especially. So to return to your original question, don't we have these epistemic institutions? So let's look at what happens when a university puts up a new policy. Throughout my entire time in the academy, if the president of the university or some committee puts in some new policy, and there's an expert on the policy in the economics department, he's going to write something and say, excuse me, but this is completely ridiculous. I mean, look, here's all this evidence. We academics, we know our areas and When they're relevant in university life, we'll chime in. That's what it always was like. But beginning in 2014-15, a kind of a fear came over us because if you do that, if you challenge anything, especially about diversity, gender, race, trans, Islam, there are a few really hot-button topics. And they're basically all about identity topics, especially. If you do that, you're not going to face people saying you're wrong and here's why. You're going to face people saying, you're a transphobe, you're a bigot, you're a racist. And then you don't know what will happen. There could be an investigation. They can file charges. And the clearest case is, I mean, Dorian Abbott at the University of Chicago. He's invited to give a talk at MIT and students protest. Why? Because he expressed his opinion in an article in Newsweek previously. He had criticized DEI practices in an article that he wrote separately in Newsweek, I don't know, weeks or months before. And that was just recently. So that's just a paradigmatic example of how we have blasphemy laws now, we have sacrilege, and those do not belong in the academy.
2: So where do these blasphemy laws, where does this practice of sacrilege come from? Because one of the things you described in your article citing the Hidden Tribe Study, which I've talked about in this podcast before as well, of course, is that the set of people who shout traitor at everybody, the devoted conservatives, are, I believe, 6% of the population. The progressive activists who might claim that a dissenting opinion on some of those issues shows you to be a bigot or a racist are something like 8% of the population. And particularly in these institutions, perhaps they're starting to change now, you know, there were a lot of the younger employees, but they were not, by and large, the people leading those institutions. There were some more traditional liberals who didn't buy that. So... You know, I have one kind of response to all of this, and I feel like you're going to tell me that that's insufficient or that's naive, but let me try it, which is why, excuse me, the fuck don't the leaders of these institutions just grow a pair and stand up for their values? Why don't they say, you know what? we have to have debate within this university and you might dislike what this person says and you can write a response, you can even peacefully protest against them, but you cannot disrupt their speech and we're not going to punish them, we're not going to fire them. Why is it that just simple courage in the defense of institutional values, which have served these institutions so well, is an inadequate response to these technological changes? That's the question we've all been
1: asking since 2015. You know, when Peter Salovey, the protesters at Yale after the Christakis issue in Silliman Courtyard, when they marched to his house and they gave him a list of 50 demands or whatever it was, why didn't he say, you know, I'm very happy to talk to you. Let's talk about these. Why didn't he do that? Rather than trying to meet as many as he could and coming up and saying, hey, here's $50 million for diversity hiring. And so I couldn't understand at the time. Very few of us could understand why no presidents did that other than Bob Zimmer at Chicago, And there was an African-American president at Ohio State who did that. And so I think what that shows actually is that you need some moral resources to stand on. And so what I've seen happening since 2015 is a battle for narrative control. And this gets us to the babble theme of the essay. So humans have shared intentionality. We have this ability, even if we don't speak the same language, you know, if you're traveling, you can kind of like work out with someone, like we're trying to do something together. Even if we can't speak, we kind of, understand what we're trying to do together. We're both trying to like work out this transaction or something. So as a teacher in a classroom, we all know what we're doing here. We're putting on a class. We all share the same script as to what this is. But what began to happen around 2015, and now I realize it's because of social media, is that it's very difficult to have everyone in the same story anymore. First of all, my students literally are on their devices, even when they pledge not to. Some of them are still on their devices during class even if they're not, their thought is in other places. Some of them are running their businesses. Some of them are doing their activism. Social media fragments everything. It fragments attention. It fragments the ability to co-create a story together. And when any common story is lost, when you can't have a common story, what you have is chaos. What you have is babble. You know, the babble story is not about breaking humanity into two groups to fight each other. It's about fragmenting everything, dividing everybody into their own separate languages. And so what I saw happening at Yale and elsewhere is the activists put on a new reading of what Yale is. It's no longer one of the most progressive Ivy League schools that is a bastion of scholarship and also progressive values. It is a white supremacist institution in which the only people who get ahead are those who are crushing marginalized people. Now, Peter Salve could have stood up to that and said, no, Yale is not this horrible, racist place, as you say. Rather, he said, you're right. You're right. And once he said that, once he validated this new narrative about what Yale is, well, that explains, I think, why Yale has continued to just shame itself over and over again. So many of the worst stories come out of Yale Law School recently. Because once you validate that Yale is a white supremacist institution, now, it's very hard to say our focus is scholarship. Rather, the focus of the institution becomes fighting white supremacy, and it becomes incoherent.
2: But this suggests to me that one of the reasons for this is a real ideological weakness, and that perhaps an ideological strengthening might be part of a response. So let me give you a more sophisticated version of the sort of simple objection I put earlier, right? I'm struck by the extent to which, first of all, American elites don't seem to hold strong beliefs. And that is different in other countries. So I've spent a good bit of time in France recently. I think some of the beliefs that the intellectual class and the political class beholds are complicated. I think the interpretation they give to what the values of a republic are and what they require in public life are in certain parts erroneous or in certain parts, I think they're overly rigid. But there is a real strong street of core, and there's a conviction that this is the set of values which should structure common life, and that that is worth sacrificing for. That is worth, at some level, risking career consequences for, because it is actually a kind of civic religion that people strongly believe. When I look at American elites, I'm just struck, I've been living in this country now for about 15 years, by the extent to which many of the people I know have simply flipped what they believe on certain important issues by 180 degrees and to which even more people seem to be willing to go along with whatever is being parroted yesterday just because what they actually care most about is getting ahead. Now, I think there's a second suspicion I have here, which is that, for good reasons, liberal-leaning American elites are very sensitive to the charge that they are self-serving or that they are insufficiently, inclusive for various groups, because America's history, of course, is one that has excluded African-Americans and Native Americans and other groups in really bad ways. And so when they see clearly liberal forces on campus worlds where demanding firings of people, demanding inquisitions, they make a kind of category mistake, which I call not-too-farism. They say, well, you know, these people are fighting on the side of the angels. They're really fighting for the right thing, and they're going a little bit too far. And you know, but that'll work itself out. So let's let this process work itself out. Eventually things will come down and we'll be in a better place. And at most, I'm going to say, aren't you going a little bit too far? So there's an unwillingness to recognize that actually, in many ways, these ideologies are, as you're pointing out, inimical to the most fundamental values that these institutions once stood for. Now, that suggests to me that as the negative consequences of this surrender are, become, are becoming more and more clear as it's showing how much it is throwing those institutions into turmoil and strife, and as it's showing how much it is empowering really dangerous right-wing populists like Donald Trump, because it's driving people into his arms, there could, in theory, be an ideological awakening, where people are saying, hang on a second, A, we need to fight for these values, we need to risk for these values, because otherwise our institutions will be completely destroyed, and that's actually bad for me, and that's hopefully again something that I care about. And we need to vindicate the animating principles of these institutions because actually the attacks aren't just going a little bit too far. They really are subverting their essential nature. So I still feel like I want to believe what I just said. I'm not sure what I do. And I fear you're going to tell me why I shouldn't. So you have a flow.
1: Well, I'm not sure. So I find it very helpful to think about the pre babel world and the post babel world the pre-Babble world is everything before, let's say, 2014. And everything you're saying makes sense before 2014. But, you know, let's suppose, as I said in this essay with Tobias Rose Stockwell, the one on social networks, you know, if God was just really bored one day and decided to double the gravitational constant, you know, he's up there watching these planets circle around each other and they've done the same thing for billions of years. Let's just double the gravitational constant, see what happens. And everything would just go crazy and, you know, planes would fall from the sky and Machines would stop working. Bridges would collapse. And in that new world, our intuitions wouldn't work right. And that, I think, is what has happened. So what you're saying makes sense before 2014. But I think there's a whole new world. The dynamics are different. And the two big things are, one, is the loss of any ability to have any sort of common or shared story or shared understanding of what's going on. And there's an important principle in social psychology, which is that when we can't make sense of something, we just get paralyzed. If it's a clear emergency, people will help. But if they don't know what's going on, they just kind of stand there. That stupid advice that used to be given, you know, if you're being raped, you shouldn't yell rape, you should yell fire because people are so selfish that they won't come. You know, that's ridiculous because if you just make it confusing, people will just be paralyzed. So the loss of the inability to understand what's going on, and this I've seen over and over again. I've spoken to many leaders who faced these various, you know, groups protesting and, making demands and going to social media and trying to humiliate them and attack their reputation personally and some of them break down to, into tears literally tears i have spoken to leaders who have cried in front of me recounting how how painful this was for them but in all cases it's like but 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 you know but i'm i'm progressive like, i share their values like I, I i i want them to you know but yet they kept attacking me it's a different world and the pre-babble intuitions don't apply anymore and a big part of it is, so it's the loss of any shared story or understanding. And the other is the democratization of intimidation and freeing it from accountability. So, you know, I use way too many metaphors in my writing, but one of the central ones in this new piece is that if everybody was given a little dart gun, and not a gun where you could kill people, just a dart gun, it shoots darts and, you know, it would really hurt to get hit with a dart. You have to pull it out of your arm, it would hurt. And of course, if you get hit with one dart, you never know, like there could be 50 darts coming, and that would really, really hurt. And so if you're a university president or an editor at a newspaper, and you know, and someone calls you a bigot or a transphobe or whatever it is, and then there's a movement to get you labeled as that, almost nobody can stand up to it. And you know, we'd like to say, well, why don't you just grow a pair and have some courage? But it's not so easy to do in the moment. And that's another thing that social media has changed, is we're used to dealing with things at a certain speed, and we're used to, if someone accuses you of something, you can defend yourself, and that might play out over days and days. But when it can move so quickly and accelerate so fast, people panic. Look, you had that great article, stop firing people in the Atlantic. And what we see over and over again is as soon as there's a sign of trouble, you know, it's just very hard for people to stand up to it, because we're all using our pre babel intuitions. So I'm not sure if I've agreed or disagreed with you, but yes, that's the central dynamic. What's going on with the people in the institutions?
2: Yeah, so perhaps the question is, if my advice feels a little bit naive in this new environment, because it's drawing on this pre-babel institutions, how can we make that basic response, which would be the healthiest response, work in a post-babel environment? And I know you have some ideas for institutional changes, and perhaps it'll take those, but I guess I also wonder what extra institutional changes will need, because my sense is that the basic mechanisms of virality, of the ability to share, and so on, those aren't going to go away, right? And so whatever small adjustments we might be able to make in the institutional infrastructure, the sense that anybody could throw a dart at any moment, and then there might be 50 more darts coming, and that's going to be a disaster, that will never entirely go away. So we somehow have to make sure that those darts don't kill. We somehow have to make sure that when people start throwing darts, there's a protection mechanism. You have an armor. And that, I think, has to somehow consist in the realm of collective behavior. Now, perhaps all of this is just not doable, but what would it look like to make that change?
1: So there are certainly some structural changes needed to social media. But yes, I agree with you. It's not going away. We can tinker at the edges. And there are a few things we can do, I think, that be substantial. Maybe we'll talk about those later. Well, actually,
2: why don't we start with that? So what do you think are the structural changes that will help? Because that would get us into a better environment. Then we can think about, you know, how much of this can we, you know, two social scientists walk into a bar.
1: What do we discuss? How much of the change we need is structure and how much is agency, right? Yeah, that's good, good, good. So the structural changes are what can we do to make social media less of a powerful tool for intimidation. So there's some little things like, for example, you know, Twitter actually is, I think, kind of trying. It's been really not well run forever. But now they're doing a few things. Like one is the ability to downvote comments, Because that's where a lot of the nastiness is, is in the comments. And so if you can block them or you can downvote them. So things like that, I think, will help. The biggest single thing that I'm arguing for is that I think systemically important platforms, namely large platforms, we should think of it the way that banks have know your customer laws. Banks are systemically important. And so they can't just take bags of money. They can't do money laundering. They have to know who their customers are. And I'm surprised. So far, people have not objected. I expected my libertarian friends to freak out when I said this. But, you know, I'm not saying you have to use your real name. You can still publish anonymously. You can tweet anonymously. But to get a Twitter account, to get access to the hyper-viralization of a company that has this incredible benefit of Section 230 protection, in order to get advantage of that, you have to just get authenticated. That is, you have to demonstrate that you're a real human being, not a bot, and that you are in a particular country, and that you are old enough to use the platform. And that's a whole other thing that probably is off topic for us is what this is doing to kids. But if you just did that, and companies are coming up with all kinds of ways to verify identity and age. And it's not that Facebook is going to get your driver's license. It's that they would kick you over to a third party or a nonprofit that would do the verification. So that would be huge. You know, of course, a lot of people are nasty under their real name. But, you know, an awful lot are more trollish because they're totally anonymous. They can make death threats and rape threats. They can say horrible, racist things. And the worst that happens is Twitter kicks them off and then they just open 10 more accounts. So that has to stop. So that's a big structural change that would help. And there are a few others. There are all kinds of things that would make, as Francis Haugen said, a lot of the changes that we need to make are really the architecture. It's not about content moderation. Everybody thinks that, oh, you know, you want to regulate. Well, that means you want a regulator who's going to decide, oh, yes, this can get said and this can't. No, no, no. Content moderation can only get a little bit anyway. And it's always controversial. I don't even think or talk about content moderation. I'm thinking only about changes to the architecture, the amplification aspects. So there are systemic things that would make a big difference. But your question is about what can people do? What can leaders do? What can people do within institutions?
2: Well, perhaps let's stick with a structural point first and then go back to what can leaders do and what can we all do? So on those structural changes, one of the ones you just mentioned, I find perfectly sensible. I guess I worry that it's not going to have that big an an impact. Uh, You know, I believe in freedom of speech. I don't believe in freedom of speech for bots and I don't believe in freedom of speech for authoritarian governments to undermine our public discourse, right? So when there's a question of should the Russian state be able to run a bot army to attack people, I have no problem saying, no, you can find ways to counter those bots and so on. But as you're saying in your own article as well, it's actually a small number of people with pretty dark personality traits who are just able to radicalize discourse online and to go and smear all of the more moderate people and sling those arrows at them. And so they're, you know, those are real human beings. They're citizens of the countries in which they engage in the public discourse by and large. They're often perfectly willing to display their real names, many of them have a picture and the name out there on Twitter, and there's absolutely no reason to assume that they're false. In fact, many of them have a little blue check, so there's been some kind of verification mechanism. So that change, I worry, is going to improve things at the margin, but it's not going to deal
1: with the real underlying mechanism. Well, first, it's not just at the margin. I think the change I'm talking about have a very big effect you're right that there are, would still be a lot of people, maybe even a majority, who are currently using their real name. Although, you know, this research by Chris Bale at Duke, even though most people don't become assholes as soon as they get on, a small number do, and those assholes do an extraordinary amount of damage. And so a pre babel intuition is, oh, well, you know, the trolls are only a few percent of people. But the post-Babble thinking is, it's all about dynamics. And so if you can knock out the worst two percent, that makes it so much better because those 2% have the equivalent impact of 100 other people. So it would not be a marginal change. It would be a big change. But how do you knock out those 2%?
2: Because it seems to me that the worst 2% that I perceive on Twitter have real names. And you know, perhaps there's the worst 2% of, in terms of people just like spewing absolutely vile threats and murder threats and so on. But those aren't dominating this world on Twitter, right? That makes it a toxic place to be and deeply unpleasant. But the virus people are the ones who have names and have platforms and are one level above that and then will just completely smear as pedophiles on the right or on the left anybody who disagrees. Exactly. And so those are not going to be knocked out by a verification method.
1: That's right. All right. So here's another idea, which I bandied about in Silicon Valley, and it's not in my article, it's not fully baked, but something along these lines. What I'm after is a systemic change so that people are rewarded for nuance and they're punished or they sort of lose social credit for complete lack of nuance. So the idea that I'd love people to know more about this to develop would be something like this. Suppose that every person, you can even have AI do this, you get rated for two things, nuance and hostility. Nuance means cognitive complexity, or let's call it that, cognitive complexity. That is the ability to have two conflicting ideas in the same tweet. You know, you couldn't do it when it was 120 characters, but 240 characters, you actually can sometimes have some cognitive complexity. Other people, you can see they have zero cognitive complexity in their tweets. And then the other thing is hostility. And so if you use a lot of curse words, AI could figure out what's really hostile. So suppose you have a zero to five rating for every person on their feeds. Now, in our public square, we have some incredibly nasty people who are bots, and we have some incredibly nasty people who are people, as you're saying, and then we're talking about the second ones. Of course, I could always just block them, but that's not a solution. If I block 20 people, that doesn't really put any pressure on them. But what if I could set it so that in the public square, I only want to hear from people, and I only want people to see me if they are not zero on cognitive complexity, And they are below three on aggression. I don't, you know, if someone's a five on aggression, I don't want them in my feed. And I don't want them to even be able to see me. And if we all had that, where you could set it. And that way, you can say what you want. This is not censoring. You can say what you want. But you know what? This public square is so important to public discourse. Why should we all have to drink your urine? Why should we all have to drink your bile? I don't want your bile. Rather, I don't want bile, period. So this is viewpoint neutral. This is politically neutral, ideologically neutral. It's not censorship. But most of us could then actually express ourselves on Twitter without knowing that we'll be insulted horribly. And most importantly, this would put pressure on people to not be assholes. Because if you're an asshole, more people block you.
2: Most people stick, for example, of the default setting, which says accounts that just mostly attack and mostly spew bile, I don't want to see... Then, if you become one of those accounts, suddenly most users don't see you and
1: you become less. Exactly. So, that change right there, that change would have enormous impact on people's behavior, on the quality of what we read. And there, perhaps, we're starting to get
2: to where structural change and individual behavior change interact.
1: Yep. As social scientists, we're trying to create a space in which, and people might say, oh, you're being manipulative. Well, you know, Twitter is creating a weird new space and the results are horrible.
2: The way that I thought about the architecture point, which speaks to the first thing you were saying about, you know, being able to downward comments and so on, is the contrast between Reddit and Twitter. I actually find Reddit to be mostly a much better platform. It has some really vile corners, but in the biggest communities, it is a much more positive space and a much less mutually hostile space. And the reason is that it surfaces the opposite comment. So there you see first the comment that has the biggest delta between upwards and downwards. So what people flock towards is a consensual answer that people found to be meaningful and interesting. Otherwise, nobody's going to upload it. So it sort of has a cognitive complexity element that is rewarded. And it's one that doesn't completely divide people. Whereas on Twitter, which tweet are you going to see first? The one that has a thousand likes and a thousand you asshole, this is terrible comments, right? But then I guess the question is, you know, unless we want to Force that as a mechanism legislatively, which I think would be complicated in terms of First Amendment. The question becomes: when do users incentivize tech companies to create those environments? What can tech companies do to teach their users to prefer those environments? But also what can users do to incentivize tech companies to choose those environments? And you know, one way of posing that question is. Why are we still all on Twitter? Why do I hear that some of the most important people in the White House look at Twitter all of the time? Why do all these institutions look at Twitter all the time? Can we somehow migrate or punish companies that keep us captive in this aggression loop? Because if we don't, then, you know, even if Twitter changes its architecture tomorrow, some other upstart social media platform is going to burn up and people will migrate to
1: that. Yes. So you put your finger on it. Why are we all on it? it's a social dilemma and so many listeners will know the term a prisoner's dilemma you know where each person is better off defecting or cheating compared to the other but if both prisoners defect or cheat or you know rat on the other then they're both worse off that's a two person economics game when you generalize it to an n person or 50 people a commons dilemma where each of us is worse off stepping out of the game as an individual but we'd all be better off if we all stepped out we're trapped and this is the case for kids on Instagram. No parent wants their child to be on Instagram. I've never heard of it. But we all relent to the extent that we have any control because our kids say, but mom, everyone else is on it. So, you know, it's a trap. And to break a trap, you can't just have individuals decide to break it. That's the point of the trap. So that's a good justification right there for some sort of regulation. Now, I teach in a business school. I have many libertarian friends. I understand that regulation usually is incredibly inefficient, but often backfires. It should not be a first resort. but Here is where I think you went too quickly over like, oh, well, we couldn't do this because of the First Amendment. But I'd like to challenge that for this reason. Of course, the government can't say what can and can't be said. And I'm glad we have the First Amendment. But here's the thing that I think people aren't getting. Section 230, there's a good reason to have it, but it is a privilege. And remind us of what Section 230 is. Section 230, this was way before social media, in the 1990s, Congress said that if AOL has a chat board and people put comments up, then AOL is not the editor, AOL is not responsible for what people said. And that made a lot of sense back then, because you can't have a free and open internet with people posting content if you're treating them like the New York Times and then you're, oh my God, you said this in the New York Times? Well, of course I can sue you for libel because you printed this. So in its origin, it makes a lot of sense, and it still does. But we've lost sight of the fact that it is a privilege. For these companies to have freedom from lawsuits, this is an incredible privilege, only granted to industries like the gun lobby, which got all kinds of congressional protection. So there are certain industries that can't be sued. But generally, we think if you have a harmful product, you you should be exposed to liability. So Section 230 is not a God-given right. It's a privilege. And so I think the government could say, Congress could say, of course, there's freedom of speech. But if you are running a platform that has Section 230 protection, you have certain duties to have certain architectures and avoid other kinds of architectural features. That's not infringing on freedom of speech, because, of course, you can do whatever you want. You just don't have Section 230 protection. You can have whatever cesspool platform you want. You just don't have Section 230 protection. So I think it actually could easily be done.
2: And what would that look like, right? How do we formulate the nature of these architectural features in a piece of legislation? Now, I realize this is a somewhat technical question, but I think it's an important one to draw down on to think about. You know, we still want Facebook to feel different from Reddit, to feel different from Twitter. That's that's actually a good feature. We don't want to go obviously towards content moderation or things that. At least from the legislator, right? We don't want the state to tell social media companies that will only enjoy Section 230 protection if they discriminate between viewpoints in a certain kind of way. So how do we formulate the nature of these architectural requirements in a coherent way?
1: Yeah. I'll give you three that I think are not controversial. So what if the law said, in order to have Section 230 protection, you have to have these three features. One, you authenticate your users. So again, people can post with a fake name. But you actually have to have some clue who they are so that you're not just letting on millions of Russian bots and agents. That's one. Two is you do age verification as part of your identity authentication. So you don't have 10 year old girls mixing with 50 year old guys. Or, so, you know, basically you keep people under 18 off your platform. It's an adult platform. And then three, you have content moderation duties around violence and child pornography, period. Now, maybe there'll be a few more added. I don't know. But like, what would be so bad about that? If we said, in order to have Section 230, like this is like a bare minimum to be a vaguely responsible platform. I don't care how far right you are, how far left. That doesn't matter. I don't care about that. Just authenticate your users, keep kids off, and shut down child porn and death threats. Could we do that?
2: Sure, I agree with each of those three, I believe. I'll have to think more about it, but none of them seem to me particularly controversial. But what we're talking about really being effective is something that goes beyond that, right? So the thing that would most effectively make Twitter a more pleasant place to be on, but more importantly, a less destructive force in American life, would be if the nastiest comments, the most controversial tweets, the most savage dunks aren't systematically favoured by the algorithm. And so the question is, can we somehow nudge Twitter to redesign its algorithm in such a way as to look a little bit more like the sort of mainstream communities within Reddit, which encourage cooperative behavior rather than the current sort of arrow-slinging, editorial battleground it is.
1: Yeah. So I think the answer to your question is probably yes, I just don't know how to do it. But One thing I've learned is that there are so many smart people working on these problems that if I can just sort of put out the general psychological principles, there are a lot of smart people who can figure it. I just wanted to establish that Section 230 is a privilege, not a right, that the government be fully within its capabilities and within the law to require something for Section 230 protection. I started with an initial list of three. I think we could add on a few others. I don't know what they are yet.
2: And of course, here, then, the other point is, you know, it could take regulation, and I'm not, in principle, opposed to that, but this could also just simply be something that the leaders of some of the social media platforms do voluntarily, and they're more likely to do it voluntarily if the users, in fact, are switching off because of the nastiness of the platform. So I guess here's the question where I do wonder about whether agency and cultural change might play a larger role than we've allowed in the argument so far. Sometimes there's just odd shifts between political epochs and between cultural moments. In a really stupid way, you know, you go and look at the 1980s and in virtually every Western democracy, the center-right is in power. You look at the late 90s, early 2000s, and somehow the center-left tends to be in power in a lot of places. And, you know, there's some interconnection between those countries, of course, but I've never read a really successful explanation for what produced that political shift. I think it's not fully explained, but we see that there often are those kinds of shifts. A recent viral article
1: talked about a vibe shift. Oh, but that was just like in Brooklyn. That was so navel-gazy. I hated that article.
2: Oh, no, of course, completely. But the idea of a vibe shift, I didn't find the article to be particularly interesting or convincing, but the term, I think, was useful. No, we've had a huge vibe shift in the last years for deep structural reasons that you've outlined. I think there are deep drivers of it. But one of them is that, you know, there's social credit to be gained from flinging arrows. And I wonder whether there's not going to be a cultural transformation where suddenly people think, you know, we're fed up with all of this polarization. We're fed up with all of this hatred. And, you know, if you're just a shitstorer, right? If you're just somebody who's like always shouting that this person is bad and that person is bad, we actually start to look down on you, right? There comes to be a real social penalty. And I feel like, you know, among the very youngest generation of people who've really grown up with these witch hunts as a constant feature of the social environment, right? And I'm not talking here about debates over celebrities. I'm talking about every classroom in every K-12 school in the country having gone through these mini moral panics about something that somebody supposedly said or posted somewhere, right? these students, I think, do find that deeply terrible. And you can start to see in some polls a kind of mini-generational shift where actually the people who are most supportive of aspects of, quote-unquote, certain forms of cancel culture are just a little bit older and at the very, very youngest cohorts, they actually tend to be a little bit more supportive of free speech and a little bit more hostile to those elements of cancellation and so on. And so, you know, could there be just a saturation point where people say, I'm sick of this, I'm sick of the 2% of people who are actually pushing this on the platforms? And then that vibe shift might in turn incentivize the social media
1: platforms to change their designs and you get into a virtuous cycle. Okay. Yeah, that is a possible outcome. And I remember Matt Ridley telling me that, because he wasn't like the oldest baby boomers. He was, like guess, born in the early 50s or something. I remember him telling me, that in the 60s, you know, when all of a sudden everybody went hippie, you know, you see this in high school yearbooks, like 1965, short hair, 1968, boom, everything is like crazy hair. He said that, you know, a few years after that, people his age, you know, were like seven years behind the oldest or something, people his age thought like this was silly, and they kind of moved past it, and the main hippie phase kind of faded. So something like that is possible. My first thought is that what you're doing here is looking at what the average person thinks. And if the average 13-year-old is different from what the average 16-year-old thinks, maybe they'll be change. That could happen. But I think that in the post-Babble world, the average isn't that important. We don't know what the average is. And look, the average person hates all of this stuff. So this isn't about the average. This is about the dynamics. And what I found when I speak about these issues is, right, most people are very reasonable most people are sick and tired of this. Most people hate this stuff. I've spoken at many high schools and colleges about the causing the American mind. And I talk about the problems of Gen Z. And I always ask afterwards, OK, I've said some critical things about your generation. Do you think I got this analogy right or wrong? And you know, it's either 100% say that I got it right Or if there are those who think I got it wrong, the conformity pressures are such that they won't speak up. I don't know. But basically what I find is that Gen Z, they know they've got problems. They know that this stuff is damaging. them. They know they've got terrible anxiety and depression problems. So I think the way to think about this is not, oh, can we hope that the next generation rejects this? It's rather, can we empower the middle 80% everywhere, like kids, young adults? Can we get a democratic system in which the middle 80% actually has like 50% of the voice. like That would be incredible. Before social media, I presume it's always been the case that the most politically active are the people on the extremes. And so we have a kind of a U-shaped function where participation is lower in the middle and higher at the end. So you're going to always have something like that. You're never going to have a flat line where each point on the line, everyone participates equally. And when social media becomes hyper-viralized in 2009, I believe what happened is the far left 8%, the far right 8% from the Hidden Tribe study, the far left and far right, they go zooming up and so do trolls and so do Russian agents and other foreign agents. And look, the CIA might be using it too for all we know. So four groups become hyper empowered by the hyper viralized social media. And the remaining 8% of the population loses voice. That's what happened to us after 2009 to 2012. And so I think the hope for reform is not, oh, well, maybe the youngest kids are gonna save us in 10 or 20 years. I think it's, you know what? We're all so sick of this. We're all so exhausted. We all hate this by all of, I mean, the middle 80%. So can we have a political movement for the middle 80%? Can we have platforms for the middle 80% where we're not afraid of the extremes? And maybe, maybe some innovator, you know, there are all kinds of alternative platforms being invented. Maybe one of them will catch on. Maybe one will get a billionaire who likes them and will support them. I don't know.
2: So I think we've gotten through this conversation the pieces of what a positive future would look like. But perhaps you can put the pieces together if 10 years from now you write an equally viral article saying, you know what, everything was stupid there for a decade and then things started to improve. What will
1: that history say? Hmm. That's a great question. From reading Phil Tetlock and having worked with him, I know that efforts to predict the future are a fool's game. And I do have to here inject my note of Tetlockian modesty that while I trace out these trends, that if these trends continue, then I think our country will fail catastrophically and become like an unstable Latin American country. However, will all of these trends continue? Probably not. Things will happen that change things. So I have no idea really what's going to happen. And even though I'm very pessimistic, listeners should take this with a grain of salt and probably be more optimistic than I am. What would it be? Well, I think it's going to involve some structural changes. I think there will be legislative changes, not by the U.S. Congress. I don't think that they're going to do anything in the 2020s. I think it's going to come from the UK. I think the UK Parliament is actually doing great work on a child design code for the internet. And California is actually right now considering adopting basically wholesale many of the UK recommendations. Australia is trying to do things. So I think some states and other countries actually are going to succeed in passing some regulations. They're not as beholden to Silicon Valley, other than the state of California. And interestingly, I just spoke with Biban Kidron, who's a member of the House of Lords, who's leading these reforms in Parliament. She said, Once they got things passed in Parliament for the UK, the platforms are now committing to do it globally because it's just too difficult for them to have one Twitter for the UK and a different Twitter for France. So I do think there is hope for legislation outside the US. I think the US is totally messed up and deadlocked. But other countries actually can make some progress here. I think that we have to harden our political institutions. I think that there are reform movements that might work. You know, and this is the sort of the great Tocquevillian tradition of Americans uh, coming together to create civic organizations to push for change. Alaska, they implemented final four voting, an open primary. That's incredibly important. Open primaries means that Congress people don't have to just fear the people who vote in the primary because the primary is open and people from the other party get to vote as well. So I think there will be some political reforms. I'm hopeful that many states will copy Alaska and change their primary system. I think there's an emerging sense, you know, like the story about the frog in the water. I don't think it's true that frogs will just sit there. But if we think of that metaphor, you know, the water has been boiling in America since the 90s. The polarization has been rising since the late 90s. And then it got worse in the 2010s. And then with Trump, he was just such a bombshell or a stink bomb or whatever you want to call it in our politics. We couldn't think straight. And then COVID, and then George Floyd's killing and the protests. So, so much has happened where we couldn't get oriented. We couldn't really have any thoughtful conversations. And I'm hopeful that those things are now passed so that we have a period when we can be more reflective. And I think the middle 80% are coming out of the bunker. And I've never written an article like this where nobody's attacking it. Like, nobody is calling me names. Nobody has even said that I'm wrong. People say that, of course, it wasn't so rosy you know, before social media. Yes, that's true. And I said that in the article. But I'm getting hundreds of people writing to me, just members of the public, saying thank you. Thank you for saying this. And the overall feeling is just exhaustion. So I do think that it's going to require a mass citizen's movement of the 80% to say, we've had it. You know, we don't want to yell and scream and kill people. We want to have a country where we can cooperate despite our differences and work together with people of different races and gender identities and religions and compromise to live together. So it's going to take changes in which the middle 80% find their voice and use it. So
2: I've made a strategic mistake because I asked you for the uplifting, optimistic vision before I asked you for the pessimistic vision. No,
1: no. Well, maybe in post-production, you can edit it and move things around. No, no. Our listeners
2: can handle it. There's one of the key insights from catalog is that you never want to have a point estimate. You want to think in terms of a range of outcomes and various probabilities. So you think that the more probable outcome is a pessimistic one. Tell us what happens if we don't get these dynamics under control, if the trends continue in the direction they have for the next 10 years.
1: Sure. So in many ways, America is living way above its design constraint. And this is the theme of your book, which is coming out any moment now, I believe. In your wonderful book, I learned that the only democracies that have ever achieved equality and stability tend to be those that don't have diversity. And if you have diversity, it kind of helps to have a king or an emperor so that you don't have democratic processes and one group dominating another. And so the great experiment, as you call it, is can you have a diverse, secular, liberal democracy? And I think the answer is yes, but the margin for error is very small. And we are so far outside that margin of error now. So I think we're running out of time. I'm just beginning to read Barbara Walter's book, How Civil Wars Start, and it is really frightening because she says it's when you have a lot of ideologies based on identity, which is what we have on the far left and the far right, and when you have militias, which is what we have on the far right, So she sees the signs brewing for civil war. Now, don't think about like the U.S. Civil War of the 1860s. Think about more like Colombia or places where there are militias, there are killings, there are bombings, there are assassinations. And of course, we had that in the late 1960s. So we've had that before. So I think that's where we're headed. We're headed towards a Latin American style democracy. And what I mean by that is imagine trying to have a secular liberal democracy with bad institutions that don't work and nobody trusts. And that's what they've been trying to do in many Latin American countries for 200 years now. And they've had moments of success and moments of catastrophic failure. And I think that's our future, unless, unless we make some big changes.
2: So you've given us the case for pessimism. You've given us the case for optimism. Finally, the last question is a straightforward and obvious one. What can listeners do to try and nudge the scenario towards the optimistic side?
1: Sure. So even though you and I have focused mostly on structural sorts of reforms, and you know, we're both social scientists, we think that way. But the thing I wish I had said in the essay, and I only hinted at it, I really should have ended with so much more of this, is that we do all have agency in our own lives. And this system keeps going because we feed into it, we post stuff, we provide the content that the companies need. And so there's a lot we can do. The first is cut our social media usage, especially our posting, by 50 to 100 percent. Be very careful what you post. You know, post things to praise people and publicize good work. But opining, like Twitter is just the worst possible place to opine, to offer your opinions. So cut back. If you're outraged about something, don't feel you're helping the world by expressing your outrage on Twitter or other platforms. It doesn't make the world better. So cut back. And the other is just go easier on each other. We are moralistic. We are hypocritical. This is one of the themes of my book, The Righteous Mind. We evolve for hypocrisy,
2: which is a must-read for all listeners of A Good Fight. I'm giving you your homework. If you've never read The Righteous Mind, please go and do so.
1: Thank you, Yasha. If you read that book or if you study moral psychology, if you understand why people do things and that we don't really know why we're doing things often, we would end up going easier on each other. So my first book was The Happiness Hypothesis, Finding Modern Truth in Ancient Wisdom. And I have a whole document of quotes from Marcus Aurelius and Epictetus telling us how to use social media because they understood social life. So here's one from Marcus Aurelius. The things you think about determine the quality of your mind. Your soul takes on the color of your thoughts. So, you know, if you hang out on Twitter, you'll get poisoned by nastiness. Reddit, as you said, is not as bad. So don't spend so much time on those places. Here's another one, Marcus Aurelius. To feel affection for people, even when they make mistakes, is uniquely human. You can do it if you simply recognize that they're human too, that they act out of ignorance against their will, and that you'll both be dead before long. So put it in perspective. Even if someone attacks you, don't respond or respond offline graciously. And an amazing thing happens. You know, when someone sends me a nasty email or tweet, on occasion I've reached out to them separately and they often apologize. They weren't thinking that I was a human being, they were just performing and using me as a prop. So go easier on each other. Don't get sucked into it. Treat each other with decency, even if they don't treat you with decency. And if a lot of us do that, if the middle 80% does that, I think that would have a huge effect. thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Thanks so much, Yasha, for all that you do on this podcast and with Persuasion.
2: Thank you so much for listening to The Good Fight. Lots of listeners have been spreading the word about this show. If you too have been enjoying the podcast, please be like, rate the show on iTunes, tell your friends all about it, share it on Facebook or Twitter. And finally, please make suggestions for great guests or comments about the show To goodfightpod at gmail.com. That's goodfightpod at gmail.com.
0: This recording carries a Creative Commons 4.0 international license, thanks to Silent Partner for their song, Chess Pieces.